Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. It's been a couple of weeks since we spoke. Tell me, how are you? How have these weeks been for you? I keep saying this now, that I have not been well since September. We got flu um, about two weeks ago um, in the house, me and the kids. Literally the worst flu I've ever experienced in my entire life. I've had cholera, I've had typhoid, never had felt anything as bad. Muscle aches that were not controlled by any paracetamol or any painkillers. Chills. It was how you'd expect COVID to be when you talk about COVID. But my COVID experience, of course, was very mild. So it wasn't like COVID for me. It was just something so much worse. And actually, this flu is also more prolonged than COVID or other flus that you've had. I was pretty sick. My daughter had a fever every day for 10 days. The lack of sleep because I'm looking after two kids. With the long COVID, I'm just like dragging my butt every day. So I think it's quite difficult to separate it out. But how have your long COVID symptoms coped with that virus, bacterial infection, whatever it was that you have had that they are not actually testing for in, in doctor surgeries here? My body seems to cope in the moment. And then it's the few weeks after that I notice a huge decline. So now? So right now, I'm noticing more palpitations. This time, the virus really hit my lungs. So I'm noticing my lungs are feeling very tender, like I've got bad asthma. All my MCAS things went a bit crazy. A week after I had the virus, I was just red in my face all the time. I was you know, doubling down on all the antihistamines and stuff and... And having reactions to foods and things. To life. It was just everything. (laughs) Like I would wake up in the morning and my face would be red. And then progressively until about five o'clock and then about after five o'clock. And and as we head towards the evening, I'd start to feel a bit better. Is that because you took Fexo? I don't know, because I would take Fexo in the morning. It didn't make any difference. Okay. So you're taking it twice a day? Yeah, I was taking it twice a day. I'm now waking up every morning with an extremely dry mouth. And I don't know if that's now... Because of the drugs. Yeah, the fixo, all the antihistamines, because apparently that's a side effect. And I think yeah. we do develop side effects if we take things for a long time. Tongue ulcers and stuff are all back. Swelling on my side, back on my right side, which I think is the lymph nodes on that side. But uh, who knows? Wow, sounds fun. Sounds a fun few weeks. Honestly, you've had times throughout the time that we've been doing this that you've really not been well. But you still, you know, you've been functional. I don't know that I've known you quite so sick as you've been these past. I've never felt so unwell, honestly. And that was just the virus itself. Forget the long COVID. Yeah. Forget all the extraneous things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. I find the heart stuff quite debilitating, which I've been dealing with since September. The tachycardia. Yeah. Because that makes me really tired. And it's also because it's your heart. Yeah. It's also kind of frightening. So dealing with the stress of that is going to exacerbate the exhaustion. Always something new to worry about. Certainly never dull, is it? No, and I'm, and I'm really <laughs> mindful of not ignoring things that I would just think, oh, it's long COVID, like the swelling under my arm. I've had it a few times now, but I really feel like I shouldn't ignore it each time it happens, just in case it's something... Yeah. not good then then it's organizing trips to the hospital and you know and... I know and I think that we're so reticent to do that one because of contracting COVID by going to these places but two because it's so draining and takes so much energy just to get the appointment for anything and then I think we both find that we just put things that in a normal world you would have gone straight to the GP and had it checked out you just put them off because you think oh well it's probably just part of my general condition uh, you know what, I'm I'm functioning, I'm up and about, I'm feeling quite tired, but ask me again in two weeks when the virus has subsided and you're just ha- seeing has com- the... Yeah, and I'm just seeing the long COVID out, fall out. That's, see that's what happens. I, yeah. What about you, my sweet? You've avoided the flu so far, thank goodness. Yeah, remarkably, I have avoided the virus. I'm surprised that we've managed to get away with it. 
not in from the school I've been in the office not got it from the office even though everyone is and the tube it's just it's just gross and no one's wearing masks anywhere if they are sick surely they should put a mask on yeah just out of common decency protecting other people so I've managed to avoid that I have actually been relatively good but but it is all relative because for example yesterday I struggled to get out of bed I felt like real crap but for me in the scheme of things I think I'm in quite a good phase still because the dips are definitely less prolonged I do tend to be able to get out of bed by about lunchtime sometimes I've not been able to do that at all and I think we've just learned to live with the weird dizziness and the the nausea I didn't eat yesterday because I was so nauseous all day that's weird. I woke up this morning with nausea as well. And it's quite normal for me now. So I have phases where I eat and then phases where I don't eat. I think I've just adapted. I realise I'm now living my life, but it is very much built around my sort of pacing model of uh, I build in when I can sleep during the day. And I really don't do the kind of socialising that I used to do at all. Something weird happened to my leg this week I don't know what my knee kind of popped out have no idea what's going on but I think it's probably time to get an MRI probably just <laughs> not time to not leave another thing because I can't be bothered to deal with the NHS and the all the hoops you have to jump through to get things seen to but I have a big problem with my left leg basically at the moment I'm kind of tired of living in pain but I'm also, I guess, kind of resigned to it. It kind of brings us nicely onto the idea of chronic illness and long-term disability. Which is something that our guest this week has studied extensively. Dr. Benjamin Natelson. He is a professor of neurology and heads up the Pain and Fatigue Study Centre at Mount Sinai. So he's been studying MECFS and fibromyalgia for many years and now is looking at long COVID, doing studies into long COVID. And I think it's quite interesting looking at the two conditions side by side. We've said all along, haven't we, how much the long COVID community is learning from the MECFS community. And he is a great example of transferring his knowledge into looking at this newer illness. Your laboratory, it looks at ME, CFS, fibromyalgia, and now long COVID. That's right. I'm in the Department of Neurology, and my laboratory is called the Pain and Fatigue Study Center. And right now, we're doing two studies in long COVID. One is funded by our National Institutes of Health, and we're comparing the neuroimages of long COVID patients who fulfill criteria for chronic fatigue syndrome to patients who have chronic fatigue syndrome without long COVID. So that's one study. And then the second study is we're doing exercise testing to identify breathing abnormalities in long COVID. Are you? Yeah. I didn't come up with that when I was searching. Is that a new one? Uh, first author is Mancini. And that study came up with two breathing abnormalities. And so what we're doing with long COVID patients is we're doing an exercise test to identify the ones that have these breathing abnormalities. And then we're going to use sleep as a modulator, I guess is the right word, of breathing abnormalities because sleep is a metabolic corrector. And if the breathing abnormalities are not metabolic, they should disappear during sleep. And so we're going to look at that. That's fascinating. It's amazing how much money you've actually managed to get granted both from the NIH and from the neurological bodies. I'm not sure that I've seen other people who have managed to get quite that amount of money. Well, we've been good. Uh, of course, the uh, VNS study I funded with a gift from uh, a grateful patient because we didn't have any money for that study. So would you tell us a bit about your work before COVID? 
Well, I've been studying chronic fatigue syndrome for many years now. We had a center that was funded by the Infectious and Allergic Disease Institute. But when it became apparent to reviewers that chronic fatigue syndrome was not due to an ongoing infection, they stopped funding it around 2005. Since then, I've been pretty alone trying to get funding. I moved here to Mount Sinai, and uh, Mount Sinai is just a fabulous place. It's just full of really brilliant people. Many of them are devoted to research. So we now have four NIH grants, one of which is approaching the end, where we were going to compare chronic fatigue syndrome patients to those who had chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia is a pain syndrome uh, with tenderness on examination. So that's one study. One study that doesn't need any subjects is the proteomic study because we collected spinal fluid some years ago and now have funding to use these brilliant techniques to determine the structure of proteins within the spinal fluid. And it really, this method identifies every protein, even if we don't know what that protein is. And so we're factoring out some of the proteins by adding people who are healthy and by adding people who have fatigue from other neurologic causes like multiple sclerosis. And we're hoping that by doing that, we're going to come up with a marker and maybe even a diagnostic marker for chronic fatigue syndrome. And everyone says, oh, spinal fluid, why don't you use blood? Well, that's pretty simple as far as we're concerned. I mean, blood has got a gajillion proteins in it. And spinal fluid is less complex. Uh, and it's the fluid that bathes the brain. And we think that chronic fatigue syndrome is a brain disease. So if the brain is involved, we might expect that we would find some proteins in the spinal fluid that are markers for chronic fatigue syndrome. So that's our second study. Our third study is uh, exercise testing. We're doing an exercise test and then following it 24 hours later by another exercise test because there are some people in the United States who claim that the results of this two CPET cardiopulmonary exercise test, the results of this two CPET tell about disability and post-exertional malaise. So we're studying all that. Subjects in this study wear a wrist-mounted computer for a week before they do the exercise study, and then they continue with it for another week and this little wrist-mounted computer is a fabulous little thing because it records activity and then allows us to ask the patient how she or he is feeling symptom-wise throughout the day. So we would expect that after the exercise, that if the person develops this post-exertional malaise, which is said to be very, very specific for chronic fatigue syndrome, I can explain what that is, then we'll be able to capture it with both activity and symptoms. And post-exertional malaise is this worsening following mild exertion or even mental or emotional stress, where all of a sudden the patient was sort of plus minus and now is minus minus. That's post-exertional malaise. So we're studying that. And what's your theory behind what causes post-exertional malaise in chronic fatigue or indeed in long COVID? Are you currently doing a study in blood volume? Did I read somewhere? Yes, that's the blood volume study. So that one, what we're thinking is that individuals that have problems with the exercise test might have reduced blood volumes. So we're doing blood volumes before each of the two-day exercise tests. And if their blood volume is low, on the second day, half of them get a saline infusion and half don't to see if the saline infusion rectifies things. 
Okay, that is something that we've spoken to various people about before when it comes to pots, blood volume in relation to pots. Does that tie the two conditions together? Well, you know, um, uh, we are assessing patients to see if they have POTS. Actually, what's more common than POTS is something we call POSH, which is the orthostatic syndrome of hyperventilation. That is, individuals who are fine when they're lying supine, we do a tilt test on them, they overbreathe. And that's actually more common than orthostatic tachycardia. And so we don't know what the relation between POTS and hypovolemia is, although most but not all of the patients we've studied to date that have low blood volumes on testing seem to have orthostatic problems, POTS or POSH. Uh, But we only have a small number. And these little computers that the patients are wearing, what what are they measuring? Two things. They measure activity on their own. But three times a day, the device indicates that the patient should fill in information about their symptoms. So we have one question about fatigue, and there's a little way they can adjust from left to right, from none to marked. So we're asking about brain fog, fatigue, and and pain. And they do that three times a day. So we know where they are before the exercise. And then we can see if the exercise affects symptoms. That method is called ecological momentary assessment. For years, researchers asked patients to fill out paper diaries, but that turned out to be not good because people get lazy and they don't fill them out. And then an hour before they go to the researcher's office, they fill them out for the past month. That's no good because you don't remember. (laughs) This captures it at the moment that they feel that way, which is great. So we'll see. We haven't really looked at any of these data yet. So those are the three studies that we're doing right now in chronic fatigue syndrome. And can you tell us all of your prior work into MECFS? How did you become aware of long COVID and how did it then end up fitting in to your world? I believe you described MECFS as an illness that has unexplained symptoms, which is the same as long COVID. Well, that's a very important question. So let me back up a second. With disease fibromyalgia, which is much more common than MECFS, but also was medically unexplained, doctors ignored it. You know, they'd put someone on Tylenol, acetaminophen, or they'd give them some mild non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, but they really ignored the pain. But then there are three FDA-approved drugs for fibromyalgia, and as soon as those FDA-approved drugs were there, the GP said, aha, I can do something about this. And so they became believers from non-believers. So with MECFS, that's an illness that until recently was stigmatized. The psychiatrists would tell the patient, there's nothing wrong with you, psychiatric, go see the internist. And the internist would say, there's nothing wrong with you medically, go see the psychiatrist. And the patient sort of fell between the cracks. As soon as I realized we were in the middle of an epidemic, I found the paper done in Toronto where there was a SARS-CoV infection in 2005, and there was a four-year follow-up of those patients that had that, and 25% of them had chronic fatigue syndrome. So back in the spring of 2020, I started writing grants to our National Institutes of Health because I saw a a tidal wave of illness coming with no one being prepared. What happened was the NIH said, we don't care, that's not our problem right now. Our problem is acute COVID. So none of that early work, which I think would have been very important to fund, where I was going to look across a number of variables, it all got pushed aside. And as I expected, SARS-CoV-2 has produced 
its own mini epidemic of chronic fatigue syndrome. The numbers are a little unclear. There's a paper where they had everybody who had tested positive on PCR. It was 100,000 that were positive, and of them, 33% had continued ill, and then they had another two-thirds that were positive but weren't ill, and that was their comparison group, trying to look at risk factors, and the rate was 7%, and so 7 to 10% of millions, millions is really a huge number. And I'm convinced that is going to educate our physicians to not dismiss medically unexplained fatigue as being uh, psychosomatic or psychogenic, whatever. Uh, I believe that it's similar to MECFS, but who knows if the mechanisms are the same because chronic fatigue syndrome is a syndrome And I always tell my medical students, a syndrome is just a whole group of signs and symptoms that may have multiple causes. And I always give them the example of heart failure, which is a syndrome and has multiple, multiple causes, all very different. So I don't know what we'll find, but I'm very, very sure that this pandemic that we're in the middle of, and it hasn't gone away despite everyone taking his or her mask off, is going to teach the physician and other healthcare providers that chronic fatigue syndrome is a real problem and one that can't be dismissed and patients need to be cared for. I think uh, the CDC puts it at one in five people have lingering after effects after a COVID infection. Well, that would be 20%. uh, Yeah, that's higher than this. I think the European number is anywhere between five and 10. So seven sits right in the middle. But it's understandable in the early days of the pandemic that the NIH or any medical body will say, okay, chronic fatigue or any post-viral illness is not our problem because we're trying to save lives. Right. But now that we know that people do get seriously sick after even a mild infection of SARS-CoV-2, that it seems irresponsible to keep going down this path of unmasking and living with COVID. Let me tell you what they've done in America. They've started a program called Recover. And what Recover is, is $1.1 billion to understand long COVID. I guess the only problem I see with Recover is that it's a top-down program. The NIH usually is a bottom-up program where researchers like me have a bright idea, lay out the logic, compete with other people, and if you're lucky, get the grant and do it. Here, it's really administered top-down. So there are sites that make decisions about who's going to do what, and they're just starting now to call for some therapeutic trials. And I understand they're going to be doing one using Paxlovid, which is the medicine that is used for acute COVID on long COVID. I'm not an infectious disease person. I'm a neurologist. So I don't know what the logic is. Viral persistence, I think, is the logic for that one. Yeah. You mean SARS-CoV persisting? Yeah. Well, there's ways to identify that, my ID friends say. You can look in the stool. I don't know if they're doing any of this, looking at a subset of individuals that clearly have viral persistence. I mean, if I were designing the study and my ID colleagues told me, well, there is an issue of viral persistence and you can look here and they tell me where here is. And then I would go. And if there was viral persistence, those were the people I would treat rather than everyone. It's like penicillin in 1937. If you did it on everyone with a sore throat, two would get better. But if you did it only on those whose tests were positive for strep, 10 out of 10 would get better. So what you're saying basically is that this kind of blanket bombing approach of treating everyone, you are, of course, going to get certain people that get better. 
but you're potentially also doing harm in the way that we overuse antibiotics. I mean, in this country, antibiotics are given out without knowing that you actually have a bacterial infection. Right. Same here. So I don't know if the worry is the same, actually. I I don't know what the risks of Paxlovid are. Listen, if it helps uh, a significant number, 5% getting better would be significant. But if it helps a good chunk of people get better, I think it's good. And obviously, the people who have reviewed this believe it's worth doing because they're paying for it. It's going to be 1,500 patients are going to have this. That top-down approach of whoever's choosing is not the same as when it's the the people like you who are pitching for the grants and have that proven track record working in that field to say, we actually do hypothesize that this might be effective. Well, I'm sure that's what happens. In other words, to get a therapeutic trial approved through Recover, that's a big process where an individual puts forth an idea and then it's reviewed by a number of committees and then it goes up the flagpole. So no, those therapeutic trials are coming from the field where doctors have ideas and they want to try them. I mean, my VNS idea, uh, vagus nerve stimulation idea, the problem, of course, with any large program is it has deadlines and the first set of deadlines is passed. But I'm hoping that my pilot data on vagus nerve stimulation goes through the process and NIH will want to do the appropriate next study, which is to not just give it to everyone, but to split the patients into some who are getting it one way and others getting it another way. So we can figure out what the best way of doing it is. So can you tell us about that theory of vagal nerve stimulation? Because you've done previous trials, haven't you, in in CFS and in Gulf War syndrome. So can you explain to us what is your theory in terms of what's happened to the vagus nerve or what can stimulating the vagus nerve do to assist with recovery from long COVID? Well, I've had some experience. The first uh, set of experiments was done in fibromyalgia The only way to do it was to do surgery and put uh, an electrode on the vagus nerve in the neck. And it was a pretty big battery at that time. So it would be like a pacemaker that would go under the muscles in the chest. And I was pretty negative about this study. I didn't think it would work at all. And we had no controls. It was open label. It was all women. 13 women had this procedure done. I was pretty impressed because... uh, Many of them lost the symptoms indicative of fibromyalgia, and many of them came off of pain medicines. So I was very impressed. Unfortunately, we were unable to get funding to do a definitive follow-up and determine that it's really the stimulation that's working. So that project died in the vine. What is the theory behind it working? Well, there are descending pain fibers that are involved in the network that the vagus is in. And so the idea here is that by stimulating the vagus, you're going to alter the way the body processes pain. That's the idea. And it was based empirically on the fact that VNS is used, is approved for treatment-resistant epilepsy, And some of those early studies reported less pain in those patients and that the threshold to feel pain went up, was harder to produce pain. And so that led my wife, who was the principal investigator of that study, to propose VNS. Now, since we couldn't get funding for it, there was a call for proposals to do studies in Gulf War illness. And we proposed VNS, and we did a very careful study. It was the hardest study of my life because finding veterans 26 years after the 1990 Gulf War, that was not easy. But that was a negative study, I must say. It didn't improve their pain, and I worried that it didn't improve their pain because we couldn't stimulate long enough. And so the little study that you've seen allowed us to stimulate for 35 minutes a day. 
uh, which is a lot of stimulation, not as much as we had in that implanted VNS study where it was on 30 seconds every five minutes, but still a lot. And uh, that little pilot study suggested that this treatment's going to work to reduce the symptoms of long COVID. So the next thing I have to do is a study designed to sort out what's due to stimulation and what's due to being a subject in a study that's designed to reduce pain. Can I just say what was interesting just then was that your first study was all women, and I'm assuming that the Gulf War study was all men? So let me first tell you why they were all women. Well, we know, because we are... (laughs) We get all the diseases. (laughs) You're right. It is a problem more in women's health. But the men we recruited chickened out and didn't want the surgery. Oh, wow. That was not designed to be all women. But isn't fibromyalgia more prevalent in women? Yes. ME-CFS, long COVID, fibromyalgia, all more prevalent in women. So the problem's in women's health. But, uh, you know, I don't remember the gender breakdown in our Gulf War bed, but it wasn't all men. Emily and I are both very interested in the fact that it's women of a certain age that seem to be the more vulnerable to getting long COVID. It's women. That EPI study was able to look at risk factors. That's a good one to read. I liked it because it, it really had everyone who tested positive in the country for uh, three years. What's your theory behind the risk factors? for long COVID or the comorbidities, potential underlying things? And do they correlate with what you've seen in ME-CFS? The risk factors that I'm aware of are if they have circulating Epstein-Barr virus at the time of the acute ailment, if they have other illnesses like diabetes, if they're women, and if they have a prior history of depression. Now, the prior history of depression, I think, is a risk factor for ME-CFS. One thing I've been fascinated by, but I'm not sure about, is that many patients, be they be long COVID or chronic fatigue syndrome, have had problems with chemical sensitivity before their illness. That is, perfumes, newsprint, new rugs. What we would call allergy. Well, they're not allergy. Those aren't allergy the way being allergic to dander or mites or a spring plant is. It is an odd sensitivity which produces symptoms and leads the individual to avoid. And we call it multiple chemical sensitivity. And MCS, I think, is a risk factor because many women have it earlier in their lives. Not very bad, just enough so that they don't go down the perfume aisles. Those are the risk factors that we know. And I'm interested in the EBV risk factor. There's some data out there that the SARS-CoV-2 virus may enable other viruses to be active. So when acutely ill patients have evidence of Epstein-Barr virus, and they can test that by looking for the actual virus by this process called PCR, their risk for long COVID was increased. And so one wonders, and I'm thinking and planning with some very, very bright infectious disease people, how to capture that and use it to ask a research question about long COVID that we can then write a grant and try to get funded to do. Is your thought that possibly all long COVID sufferers have EBV circulating? Well, everyone has EBV. Everyone, it's a very common virus that most people get young and doesn't really cause anything. Some people, it causes mono and the virus never goes away the same way the uh, virus that produces cold sores on your lip doesn't go away. And when you're under stress, that virus then breaks through and you get a cold sore. We really don't know, but I and my colleagues that are talking about this and trying to get our arms around it to write a grant uh, think that it may be possible that something about having had SARS-CoV-2 
has freed up or allowed to activate some form of Epstein-Barr, which is one of these herpes viruses. The other herpes viruses are HHV6 and 7, which have also been some time ago thought to play a role in chronic fatigue syndrome, but no one's ever been able to prove it. But I will say that that whole idea of viruses producing disease was just given a very powerful push forward by a group led by a man named Robinson, who wrote a paper in Science showing in a huge number of vets, or I think they were vets, that EBV is a risk factor for multiple sclerosis. Yes, I was just going to mention that study. Yeah, it's very important, uh, and it's certainly influencing our thinking. So that's like a double blow, really, because if the SARS-CoV-2 reactivates Epstein-Barr to make you more ill, are you then at greater risk later in life to develop MS? Well, I don't know. See, it's a it's a horrible circle. What I'd like to do is figure out the right research questions to ask to see if any of these herpes viruses add to the risk of getting long COVID. That's what I want to do. See, they're risk factors. It's not like, you know, putting your finger down and smacking it with a hammer. It's probably not 100%, but these risk factors, like being a woman is a risk factor. And thank God not every woman who's had COVID gets long COVID. Do you think recurrent infections, because COVID is so widely circulating, is an additional risk factor for long COVID? We should be able to know that, but we don't. I don't know the answer to that. I'm optimistic that this huge investment that they finally made here in the United States to fund this recover program is going to bring a lot of knowledge. It's going to help us understand the disease. I'm a little disappointed because the powers that be don't see the value of including a group of patients who have ME-CFS and not COVID to understand how the two may be the same or different. And that's why I'm so thrilled with our imaging grant that was funded. It's very modest, but to compare brain imaging in ME-CFS alone and what I call ME-CFS long COVID. Also, it seems a little bit mean of them because of how much we are relying on the MECFS community to actually develop understanding of long COVID. So to then not include them in this when it is possible that it is part and parcel of the same thing. Well, it certainly looks the same. The differences in symptoms are there more cardiopulmonary symptoms in long COVID, more palpitation, more shortness of breath more chest pain. We don't see, we can hear about palpitation in MECFS and shortness of breath because that could just be due to the fact that when you have to rest, your body deconditions. And so when you do anything, it's hard to do, obviously. But chest pain, a lot of complaint of palpitation, that seems more long COVID. And so a lot of these patients are going to see cardiologists and I don't know what cardiologists are doing for them except testing them. Well, that's me. That's my long COVID journey is all is all cardiac related. And I'm seeing someone at the Cleveland Clinic and really they don't have a clue. And you, do you have long COVID too, Emily? Yeah, I do. But mine is much more neurological. So my main things have been migraines and tinnitus and blood whooshing in my head. So it feels like some kind of vein dilation. You get tremors as well, don't you? Internal vibrations. I get tremors or a whole range of things, a lot of stomach things. And then the last two days I've had heart, weird heart stuff. I think stress makes it all worse. And there's a tremendous amount of stress in long COVID patients because they're coping with not being well where they were well. It's the same story as MECFS, but multiplied by a thousand. You'd actually done a study previously, hadn't you, looking at stress and sleep deprivation on CFS? I did. Are those two factors that you would also say play massively into long COVID? 
there's a device out there. I'm, I'm starting to become a believer in it. It does heart rate variability biofeedback. Have you heard of that? Mm-hmm. Well, we've spoken to various people about that quite extensively. Who's Who have you spoken to about heart rate variability biofeedback? Uh, Dr. David Strain. He's the expert here in the UK. Well, he may be heart rate variability, but biofeedback is different. Oh. Let me tell you about it. There's an app called Inner Balance that you put on your smartphone, and then you pay them to get a wire to connect your EKG to the app, and that's where they get the money. And then uh, what you do is you do paced breathing, and I like the paced breathing to be at six to seven breaths a minute. You can adjust the pacing rate, and then as you breathe in and breathe out, This device, they've had 25 or 30 years to research this and prepare information for patients. And they really sell it for stress reduction. But I I have one long COVID patient who had very, very odd tremors, very odd. They would come and go. And we, we never really could understand what they were all about. So I had her start inner balance. And what this little program tells you is how well your breathing and your heart rate variability cohere, stick together. So at the end of 10 minutes or 12 minutes of doing this paced breathing, it tells you how well you did being able to link your breathing to your heart. And what they are looking for, heart rate variability that goes up and down, up and down. And you women can feel heart rate variability by feeling your pulse and then by taking a very slow breath in and a very slow breath out. You'll feel that it accelerates and decelerates. They can capture all this. And with practice, you can magnify the synchronization between your breathing and your heart rate. And uh, that's beneficial because a big chunk of heart rate variability is parasympathetic. And parasympathetic is the part of the autonomic nervous system that's calming. So, you know, it'll cost someone a hundred and whatever dollars, $20 for the electrode. Inner balance is free. I uh, recommend it for any of my patients who are stressed, and all of them are, because, God, this has been hard to to be trivial about it. Mm. Are you saying that we can consciously control our heart rate variability by working on our breathing like that? That's right. Yeah, I think saying that you can consciously control. So it's biofeedback. You've heard of biofeedback. They use that in migraine to try to improve migraine by dilating vessels in the finger. Here it does it by improving heart rate variability. And a big chunk of heart rate variability is parasympathetic. So breathing, you can adjust your breathing rate on this little device to see which one gives you the best synchronization. I think it's great and it's cheap. So I like that. It's very, very useful for stress management and for individuals who have long COVID and are just pulling out their hair. Can we talk about your philosophies in creating an individualized plan for wellness for your patients? What other strategies do you employ when you're treating long COVID? Well, I guess the first thing, I spend a lot of time with a new patient because there usually is a story to tell. While I'm looking, while I'm asking, I try to understand the patient's concerns. What does the patient identify as his or her worst problem? And what are they looking for in consulting with me? That's very important to try to get on the same page. And then, of course, I always look for depression and anxiety, because if you have coexisting depression, the way I always put it to my patient, that's more rocks in your rucksack. When you get a disease like long COVID, you have a rucksack that has rocks in it already. You're now 
having to walk with, and then to add major depressive disorder uh, or panic attack. Although I would say that I never had previous depression and certainly never previously had anxiety before I got long COVID and have subsequently had not depression, but I've definitely had big mood changes. And I get them immediately before a crash. I get this really dark mood immediately before I have the physical symptoms. And I've had anxiety, which I believe is a physical thing. It's a heart thing. So how do you separate that out from being a pre-existing condition? It's not pre-existing. You've just told me it's not. But the thing is, we know that some viruses can produce depression. I mean, mono. Mono is a great producer of not only depression. Mono is a very interesting disease before SARS-CoV-2 because 12% of mono patients continue with chronic fatigue syndrome in six months and 4% for uh, after, I can't remember whether it's a year or two years. So we know that bad respiratory infection can produce chronic fatigue syndrome. And that is actually completely fits with your theory that it's a brain thing, because I believe isn't that potentially to do with inflammation of the brain? Well, the idea is we all hypothesize inflammation, but proving it has not been trivial. They're, they're doing certain imaging studies using materials that go to parts of the brain that are inflamed, but I don't know where those studies are, frankly. There have been no reports. Okay, fascinating. Before long COVID, you, you wrote a book, I believe, called Your Symptoms Are Real, What to Do When Your uh, Doctor yeah. Says You Have Nothing Wrong. Right. Um, <laughs> is that a book that uh, all long COVID patients should go to for learning how to handle doctors? Because let's face it, not every doctor is like you. Not every doctor takes two hours to sit down with their patients and find out what's actually going on. Yeah, right. Well, it really tells the reader how I think. Even though that book is pretty old now, it really is, I think, the same. And I still don't have any specific treatments for MECFS. I'm optimistic about this whole VNS idea. But again, to use the American a metaphor, I have to get into the batter's box and I have to hit the ball out of the stadium in order to get the funding to do it. Otherwise, it's just another bright idea and bright ideas, unfortunately, are a dime a dozen. So we'll see. If I can get that study funded, I'm going to know in two years how valuable it is. And what I like about VNS is you don't have to stop any medicines to be a subject in that trial. To be in my NAP study, you can't be on any medicines. But if I were doing a VNS trial, well, I guess I'd exclude people on opioids. But anyone else, no problem, because it doesn't matter as long as they don't add medicines while we're doing the trial. I need research subjects for studies. So any of the ones that live within 50 miles of New York, we can talk about that. Awesome. I'll move. <laughs> well, just if it were a possibility, you would call our lab 212-844-6665. That would be 1212, I guess, 844-6665. So we'll see. I have my fingers crossed. One of the bright points in the interview is the fact that he's he says now it's it's easier to get funding for studies than it was when he was just looking at MECFS or fibromyalgia yeah I find it really interesting we covered such a range of things that we've spoken to lots of different people about various different aspects and he he brought a lot of them together in this interview exercise testing Going back to this theory of blood volume being at play, EBV and that reactivation, chemical sensitivity, which he says different from MCAS. Yeah, uh, I mean, his philosophy, the way that he does medicine is really refreshing because he says, I'll sit with a patient and talk to them for extended period of time and get their full history. 
And he says there's always something in there where they're like, no, 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 I've been fine, I've been fine. But when you delve deeper, the certain person can't walk down the perfume aisle. Yeah. You know, and that matters. Yeah. And identifying those risk factors. Oh, and the study that Dr. Natelson referenced is the Claire Hasty Scottish study from July. And we have a link to it on our website for anyone interested. Is there some hilarious thing that you want to say to end on? Because I know that you love to end on a joyful note. Well, this will probably be our last one before Christmas. So I'd love to wish all our listeners a Merry Christmas. Yeah. Hope for a flu-free COVID-free holiday. holiday. COVID-free, flu-free, RSV, scarlet fever. <laughs> <laughs> everything free holiday and a restful holiday and hopefully we'll come back in in the new year fighting fit with more regular episodes let's see let's see how we're doing yeah we've been a bit not too great the last few months so that's why our episodes it's tough have dropped slightly tough doing this with long covid people <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But yeah, I think there's a lot of research coming out. There's a lot of interesting things happening. And uh, what would be really nice, if anyone has actually recovered, could they let us know? Because I think that's the boost that we all need to to know that it is possible to recover from it. I don't know if it is. But we're managing and smiling. And (laughs) that's all you can do. Yeah. Have a great holiday. Yes, have a great holiday, everyone, especially you, Emily. And you. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.